We have three passages from God's Word that we will be reading. One is from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. The New Testament reading comes from the book of Acts. And then the epistle reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. So you shall make it. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Tracy, our secretary, walked into my office this week like maybe I really didn't realize how many scriptures were on the scripture sheet. She said, All of these? Really? You know, and it's going to be all of them, and you're going to want to take that home. We're going to see this morning in a beautiful way the unity of Scripture, even to this very hour, in preparation for the election of men to the sacred offices of elder and deacon. We've undertaken a brief study of the biblical view of the church. Not our culture's view, not your view, but a biblical view of the church. 
We've set aside our study in John for a few weeks. In a day when our culture has marginalized the church, in a day when the church is counted as insignificant and useless, we asked the question two weeks ago, who loves the church? And the Bible powerfully answered with this one answer, convicting answer, Jesus does. He loves the church. We saw that Jesus founded the church. He calls the church his church. He said, that's my church. We saw that Jesus was head of the church. We saw that he died for his church. He has a passionate love for his church. And last week we saw that he has gifted the church with assets that he has not given to any other institution on the face of the earth. In other words, the Jesus of Scripture has a very high and holy view of the church. However, his view of the church does not even, this is sad, you all, his view of the church does not even begin to permeate the church that we see in our culture. It does not permeate even the evangelical church today. What am I saying? This is a timely study for us at Christ's covenant. We're a young church. This is a study that's crucial for us. If we want to be a church true to the biblical view, the view that Jesus has, then we must relearn what he taught in his word about the church. The church in our culture that we've grown up in, that we've witnessed, has a spiritual dimension. It's a scary word, isn't it? I'll be 80 years old this year. That word has meaning to me, lots of meaning, dementia. Well, our church, the evangelical church in this country, has a spiritual dementia. We have forgotten who we are. We have developed a lackadaisical attitude toward his church. We often hear that we can follow Jesus without really any relationship to his church. We hear, well, the church is not necessary for my faith in Christ. I can have faith in Christ without the church. People, families are leaving the church in droves. It is foolish, absolutely foolish, to go about the business of striving to be the church of Jesus Christ without knowing who and what the church is. What are her priorities? What does Jesus expect of her? But the church in this age has become just that foolish. And unless CCRC relearns from Jesus who and what the church is and what she's to be about, then we will soon find that we too have fallen in with the evangelical church of our day, wandering in the wilderness, 
with no idea of the greatness of our identity and the greatness of our mission. So this week, as we continue in this study, the question is, where can I go and meet with God? And this is a prelude to next week's. Next week's messages will be one of the most important that this church will ever hear. What happens when we meet with God? Where can I go? Where can I go and meet with God? We will begin this morning with the history of the church that reaches down to this present hour. And you say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound too exciting. Really, a history of the church may not sound exciting to you, but it is wonderfully exciting. If you're to understand, if we are to understand the history of Christ's covenant reformed church, we must reach back into ancient history. Go back to the verses we read this morning. And we see there that God told Israel to build a dwelling for him. It's very simple. First point. Look at Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture so that you shall make it. This is a first. They had not had a permanent place together and meet with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's two words you must understand the meaning here. The Hebrew word for sanctuary is mikdosh, and it simply means holy place. It's a combination of two words, holy and place. R.C. Sproul translates this sacred space, space that is sacred. This sacred place was to be built after the pattern of a dwelling. Now, a dwelling, where did these people live? They were nomadic. They were in the wilderness. They were moving through the wilderness. So they lived not in houses of brick and mortar. They lived in tents. And the word tabernacle literally means dwelling or tent. That's what it means. He said, as all these tents from million people spread out across the wilderness, he said, make a tent, make a tabernacle for me according to my design. Look at Exodus 27, 21. In the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons, they were the priests, shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. Did you see that tent of meeting? You've probably seen that before. After the tabernacle was called the tent of meeting, in this passage, all through the rest of Exodus, 
all through Leviticus, all through Numbers, all through Deuteronomy, it was called the tent of meeting. Why? It wasn't where the people met, met together. That wasn't the meaning. It was where God's people met with God. It was a tent in which they came into the presence of God. People, this is the heritage. We're going to see this morning that this is the heritage of Christ's covenant reformed church. This is where it began for us. Don't go back to October two years ago. Don't go to the coming of Christ in the incarnation. Go all the way back to the wilderness. Build a place. Build a place for me to dwell. Later, this tent of meeting would be replaced by the temple in Jerusalem. Look at 2 Samuel. Now here, it's just changed. There are no more nomadic people walking through the wilderness. They've come into the promised land. They're building estates. They're building houses. They're building cities. They're living in permanent places. Look at 2 Samuel 7, 1. Now when the king, that would have been King David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, obviously, David said, I'm living in a house. God's still living in this tent. We, we need to change that. His heart was in the right place. And so Nathan, it sounded, and David had this incredible love for God. It sounded like, it sounded so good. I'm going to build a temple. Well, God sends Nathan back to David to say, David, you're not going to build the temple. Your son Solomon's going to build it. You can collect all the material. And David spent the rest of his life collecting all this material from all over the world. To build the temple but it was Solomon who would build the temple so the people of Israel moved from their tents into houses in the land God gave them for a while they had worshipped in the old tabernacle but then just as God commissioned Moses and Israel to build the tabernacle he commissioned Solomon and Israel to build the temple so our first point is this in the scriptures we've read, God told Israel to build a dwelling for him. First the tabernacle and then the temple. Secondly, I want you to see in these passages that God's presence, God's presence made the tabernacle and the temple sanctuaries, sacred space. Remember he said build a sanctuary, build a sacred space. Well, what made it a sacred space? In these scriptures, we will see God's presence made the tabernacle and the temple, the sacred space, the sanctuary. Now, God gave specific directions for the construction of the tabernacle and temple. You can read those directions. They're interesting. Read through the rest of Exodus. Here's what he said. Here's how to do it. You could draw an actual blueprint for the tent of meeting and the temple just by reading these directions in Exodus and 1 Kings and in Chronicles, Kings and Chronicles, of course, would have been the temple. 
But is that what made these specific, the, the curtains, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar, is that what made this a sacred space? No. Only one truth made the tabernacle and temple sacred places. The holy place was not made sacred because it had a certain design. The one thing that made that place sacred, that made it holy, was the presence of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember, Moses was in the wilderness. He thought he was on the backside of the world. He would never see Egypt again. This is the wilderness when he had fled Egypt for his life. He'd been out there 40 years. And he sees a bush. He's very intelligent, well-educated. He had been educated in Egypt. He sees a bush, but, and that wasn't unusual in the desert. But this was a bush that was not consumed. It just kept burning. It, didn't, it wasn't just a wisp of fire. It just kept burning. And so he approached the bush. God was there. God had attracted him. And what was the first thing God said to Moses from that bush? Stop! Do not come near! And take off your sandals for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Look at it, Exodus 3, 5. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Was that ground holy 10 days later? Was it holy 10 months later or 10 years later? No. There was no shrine there. It was holy ground. Only as long as the God of heaven and earth and all of his holiness chose to reveal himself in that place. However, remember what he said to Moses? Build a place where I will dwell, where I will live, where I will stay. It won't be temporary. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not coming to make a brief appearance at their tabernacle or temple. This was his dwelling. What does our text say? And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Live in their midst. And what happens when you build a house? You have a architect that designs it and that's exciting you get a contractor and you go out there every single day to see how it's progressing from the foundation and then what happens you move in that's what God did when the work was finished his presence came visibly to the tabernacle look at Exodus this is just incredible. Look at Exodus 40, 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the last of the work was finished, the work ordered by God, when the last curtain had been hung, God moved into the tabernacle. 
the glory of God was visible as God entered the tabernacle. That happened in the wilderness. Well, what happened when the temple in Solomon's day was finished and they moved the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies? Look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of God was so powerful, was so great in that place that even the priests could not go about what they were supposed to do. So God told Israel to build a dwelling for him. Secondly, God's presence made the tabernacle and temple sanctuaries, sacred space. Thirdly, in a similar manner, God took up residence in his church. Now, if I'm reading this for the first time, what's the natural question? Some of you are asking that question right now. All right, John, that's, that's ancient history. Today, where can I go and meet with God? Where does God live today? Does he still meet with his people? How does he dwell with his people? Folks, I, I get so excited about this all week long. This is just incredible. There's a unity in Scripture. That's one reason why you should carry your Bible. That's why you should get to know, because I'm, I'm walking you through this. And the verse we're about to read reaches all the way back to Exodus. It reaches all the way back to Kings. Scripture's so interrelated. It's miraculous. It's incredible when you see it. Listen to the words of Jesus. Now look carefully. Take your pen and mark it. I will ask the Father, this is Jesus, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you. Do you see it? For he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I, this is Jesus speaking, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I in him you. That is John 14, 16 through 20. Now, we usually look at this and we individualize it. We say God dwells with each one of us by his spirit. And certainly, Jesus was referring to that. But he was referring to so much more. He was referring to his dwelling with the people. He was talking to all the disciples here as a group. He said, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. 
But what does he say? Look at it, mark it, but you will see me. The world does not have eyes to see, but you'll see me when I meet with you. You will see me because I'm in the midst of my people. This morning, we've come here, and we say this every week, we've come here to see Jesus. We've come here to meet with him through the power of his spirit. Now, remember two weeks ago, at that crucial point, that pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus, when he took them to Caesarea Philippi, and he said, who do you say that I am? This is a midterm exam. And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, this was a confession of all the disciples we read. That was in Matthew 16. And right then, we saw this right then. What does Jesus, what subject does he take up? He starts talking about the church. He says, on this rock, on this confession of my deity, on this revelation that I'm going to die, an atoning death. I'm going to build my church. And from then on, he begins to talk about the church. That was in Matthew 16. In Matthew 18, Jesus said this. And we say it constantly, and we need to say it more. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. I will dwell with them. When they meet in my name, I will be there. I will dwell. That's my dwelling. As he commissioned those same disciples to go into the world, preaching and baptizing and building his church, what did he say? After that, in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You're going throughout the world. And you don't know this, but it's going to be a long time before I return. But I will be with you to the end of the Messianic age. When I'm in glory, I will be with you through the Spirit. Now go back to that verse where two or three are gathered in my name. Three most important words there are in my name. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 12 as he talks about the tabernacle and then the temple. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11. Then to the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. So he's talking about the tabernacle and the temple. There you're to bring everything I command you. You bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your special gifts, all the choice possessions you vow to the Lord. Now he's talking about this tabernacle there. In 1 Kings 8, 29, look at that. May Solomon is praying, and he's saying to God, May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer of your servant praise toward this place. In the Old Testament, those two passages we see, and this is not the only two places, in the Old Testament, God made his presence synonymous with his name. I'll put my name there. You know, that's what we do. If I said, hey, where do you live? Where do you dwell? You tell me, if you ask me where I live, I would say, 
Terry and I live at 60 Augusta Drive, Oakland, Tennessee. The Sartell name is there. Jesus said, I'll put my name where you gather. And where two or three gather in my name, my name will be there. And I will be there. The apostles got this. They understood. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He's speaking to the Ephesian church. And he says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to the Jewish side of the church. He's speaking to the Gentile side of the church. It's remarkable that these two groups of people are sitting together loving each other. And he says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of, of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is looking to talk about the church. They could be speaking of Christ's covenant in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now look at verse 22 in him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Do you see it? Go back to Exodus 25, 8 and 9. That's exactly what he said. Build me a dwelling. God comes to the, through Christ and he says, I'll dwell where you gather in my name. You need to know that has been the classical teaching of the Christian church. They had to hide in those early years. They hid in the upper room. They hid in the secret places in Jerusalem. They hid outside the city walls in the wilderness. They hid in the catacombs of Rome. They lived in small houses, hidden places, but they were holy places. R.C. got it right. Sacred space. Why was it sacred? Because the people of God were gathering there in the name of Jesus. And there was a moment. This is, this gets better than this. It doesn't, I'm, it gets better. It's about to, you're not going to believe this. There was a moment in time when God came to the tabernacle. We've seen that. There was a moment in time when God came to the temple. Well, there's a moment in time that Jesus' promise was, was fulfilled. Remember, we read it in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Well, that happened in the church. There's a New Testament corollary. The moment that God came to dwell with his church. Look at Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost was a Jewish feast day. They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be the tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
Jesus had prophesied. He had said, remember, don't leave Jerusalem until this happened. They had been to seminary, Jesus' seminary. They knew the story. They had the crucifixion. They had the resurrection. And Jesus said, whatever you do, don't leave yet. Something has to happen. The glory of God has to fall on the church. You're to receive the power to go do what I've called you to do. And just as the glory visibly fell on the tabernacle and then the temple, that same glory fell on the church at Pentecost. Jesus came in the Holy Spirit to dwell with his people. And he has never left. Wherever two or three are gathered in any century, in any decade, In any place where two or three have gathered, he's been in their midst. He's here. Can you not see it? He's here this morning. Faithful to that promise. Some people pray for another Pentecost. To quote a church father, I can't remember who to quote a church father. If you're thinking, well, we need to pray for another Pentecost. That church father answered by saying, you might as well pray for another crucifixion. It's not happening again. It happened once and forever. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Through the age of every antichrist that comes against the church. What do you say? So why did Christians then build sanctuaries? Why were the great cathedrals built? Jesus didn't lay down any specifications for the worship of his people and that had to do with a building. Yes, he did. Remember those assets that he gave the church? Remember the keys to the kingdom? It's got to be a pulpit in the church pulpit what that holds God's word there's got to be a table with the bread and wine on the table that the people of God can eat and sup with Christ himself there's got to be a baptismal font where we're baptized where we're set apart for holy use People cannot worship. We cannot gather with at least the symbol of a pulpit, the symbol of a table, the symbol of a font. But there's something else. You say, so why? You know, we, we just voted this morning to, to buy this building. Let me ask you a question. Why do families... Build houses. Why does your family live in a house? Does that house make your family a family? No, of course not. A house does not automatically become a home. Your family is a family even if you're living out of your car. You build a structure designed to meet the unique demands of your specific family got to be a kitchen food there's got to be food you got to feed 
The people of God were driven to build places together to meet with God that reflected the character of God they worship and their love and reverence of Him. And I'll be the first one to say there are cathedrals all over this world, and this ought to scare us to death. There are cathedrals all over this world that no longer are houses of worship. They don't house God's people anymore. They're not the church. The church is always and forever. There's not a, there's not a steeple on this. We don't have pews. We manage to bring a pulpit in. We have the table. We have a font when we need it. But this is a gem that on February 18th, this morning, as the people of God gathered to worship at 1030, this became a sanctuary. This became a holy place, a dwelling for God himself. Well, we must end. If you ever go to Lewisburg, West Virginia, I've been there. I've said, now this is not Virginia. This is West Virginia. It's right on the edge of Virginia. The only thing that would have made it better if they would have been a little further over, a little further east into Virginia. But I visited Lewisburg, and there's a building there called the Old Stone Presbyterian Church. And the original Builders etched a message in stone above the door. I mean, it's etched. It's not written in ink. It's written in stone. And this is what it says. This building was erected in the year 1796 at the expense of a few of the first inhabitants of this land to commemorate their affection and esteem for the holy gospel of Jesus Christ. Reader, if you are inclined to applaud their virtues, you give God the glory. Give glory to God. Why? Because they were only doing what God told them to do. As the church, they were the temple of God when they gathered and they built a building for the purpose of meeting with God. Sometimes we hear, well, I can worship God out in the field. I don't need to gather with the church on Sunday. I can worship God on the golf course, or I can worship God in the duck blind, or at the lake. Listen to me. I'm going to say it as plainly as I can. That is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. It's simply not true. Unless we are gathered with the people of God, we cannot be the church with which Jesus dwells. You can pray as an individual believer, and you should. But that's not the church gathered. Last Sunday, people from all over the world gathered in Las Vegas for the Super Bowl. There were four, I read this this week, this is amazing. There were 400,000 people in Las Vegas. They, most of them, weren't attending the game. They couldn't. They couldn't get 400,000 people into that stadium. 
But they were just in Las Vegas to be there for the Super Bowl. They wanted to witness what this was like. Just to be around it. More people watched the 58th Super Bowl than any other televised event in human history. Last Sunday, 124 million people watched the Super Bowl. 124 million. This event has become like a cultural earthquake. Now, unless you think I'm throwing stones at the Super Bowl, I'm not. I, I was one of those people. We had a small family party with wonderful food, and we watched a wonderful football game. But being in this present series on the church of Jesus Christ, I had to ask myself all week long, where's the excitement? Where's the joy? Where's the anticipation of God's people as they gather to meet with their creator, as they gather to meet with their sustainer, as they gather to meet with their redeemer? Folks, the Super Bowl, an earthquake in our culture, it pales, it pales in comparison with meeting with the Almighty. It just does. I can understand the attitude of the world toward God and His church. I can understand it. I can understand the world marginalizing the church. They don't see, they don't know. But folks, how can we excuse the apathy of God's people in our culture toward His church? The apathy of God's people toward worship and toward the church is appalling. And that's what we learned this morning from God's Word. And all of God's people said, Amen.